over the years, I suppose that everyone who preaches has several questions asked to them, and then there are people who become confused because of their religious neighbors, and because of that, people will say, will you preach on a particular topic? Now, on the first Sunday nights of each month, we do have a question and answer, but these are generally shorter lessons or shorter points. Tonight is one which does require a full lesson to discuss it. And so as I begin with the idea, what does Armageddon mean? I suppose that when I say that, some of you have something in your mind that is your idea of what Armageddon really would be. I know that in 1998 there was a movie that was titled Armageddon. And it was about a great cataclysmic event. Supposedly an asteroid was headed toward Earth and there was needed to be someone to try to prevent Armageddon, some great event. Of course, there's also others who believe that there are events that are actually in play at this present day that are going to bring about World War III and there will be a great war that will take place in the Middle East, which will result in the annihilation of man, or the fact that it will wipe all people off the face of the planet. They believe that there will be the beginning of nuclear war, and there will be such that not only those who would be killed by the bombs, but those who were left would be dying a slow, painful death due to the radiation poisoning and other such things as that. Or others would look at this and can say, this is simply a battle between good and evil. And the question comes up is, how does this relate to what some of our friends may believe, which is called a doctrine of premillennialism? And you may not know it by the name premillennialism, but they believe that there will be a rapture, that Jesus will come again and reign on this earth for a thousand years. Well, for us tonight, what I'd like for us to do is to look at three things. I want us to look at Armageddon Explained. We've got to understand what most people mean by the term, and we've got to look and see what the Bible means by the term. And then I want to do an expose for just a few minutes to try to understand what people are saying, and then let's see if that is true, if it rings true, if it follows And then finally, I want to do Armageddon examined as it appears in Scripture and what the Bible teaches about it. And hopefully when we end this lesson that you can say, I think I know what the Bible teaches on that subject. Let's begin, first of all, with this idea of Armageddon explained. Much of what will be asserted is pure fantasy. It's made up for dramatic effect. Quite often, for instance, when you have movies that are written about some historical event, there will be people who will take liberty with it and add things. For instance, if you've ever watched any of the movies that are based upon the Bible, you'll scratch your head and you'll say, I don't think I remember that being in the Scripture. For instance, if you saw the movie The Last Passion of Christ, or The Passion of Christ, you will observe that there's a lot of things in that movie that are not in the scriptures. I want to talk to you for just a minute about premillennialism so that you can see 
where the battle of Armageddon falls in their minds. I've got a chart, and if you'll notice on the chart, at the very left-hand side you will see the word tribulation. And they believe that there will be a time which Jesus will come and will rapture, that is, take all the saints to heaven, and that he will stay there with them for seven years so that the saints will be spared having to go through the tribulation. There will be divided into two segments of three and a half years. At the end of that seven years, Jesus will return to this earth again, bringing with him all of those ones whom he raptured, and will at that time engage the battle of Armageddon. And that's the marking event. And after that, he will reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, then those who were righteous would go to heaven. Those who were wicked would go to hell. I tried to find some way to be able to present to you exactly what they say without trying to misrepresent them. There are a number of people who have written books. There are a number of people who have made it very plain what they believe. I could have taken a sermon preached by Jerry Falwell. Many of you may remember him. Or you could take a sermon that was preached by Billy Graham. Or you could take others. But one of the websites that is called raptureready.com gives their views in a bullet format. In other words, they'll say this point, this point, this point. And for a minute or two, what I'd like to do is to read to you some of that and so that you might be able to have a good understanding. Here's what the first bullet says. A man will arise who will achieve victory after victory, both in politics and in war. This man, who should be easily identified by his rapid rise in popularity, is your Antichrist. Many people believe that this person must be Jewish. That is, in order for the Jews to accept him as Messiah, only a Jew will suffice. This is not necessarily the case. The Bible does not specify that he is a Jew, and it does not specify his nationality. Only God-fearing Jews will require a Jewish Messiah. The liberal, ungodly Jews who dominate Israel will be lost when it comes to biblical truth as the Gentiles of the world, and will be deceived by his charisma and more than likely the desires of this world's media. Currently, the nickname for the United States is the Great Satan. This may have some significance. So they are implying that the Antichrist very likely will come from the United States and that the Antichrist will then become a world ruler with such political savvy with such triumphs as uh, a ruler of a military will be able to bring about himself as being deceiving the whole world. They said violence will increase in all parts of the earth or world, both nation against nation, ethnic wars, and domestically, men will indiscriminately slay one another as peace will be removed from the earth. In other words, there's going to be violence everywhere. There will be extreme inflation, poverty, and lack of food as one day's wages will buy enough food for one person for one day. Or one day for one person. In a very short period of time, one quarter of the earth's population will be killed due to wars, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. 
The wild beasts could very well be viruses, bacteria, and other microbes. In late 1995, Time magazine ran a cover story on the rise of new infections called microbes, malevolent little beasts. They said many people will experience a religious conversion and become followers of Jesus Christ. And most of these people will be hunted down and killed. There will be a great earthquake and the sun will be blackened and the moon will be turned to red and the mountains and islands, which are underwater mountains, will be moved. There will be a brief period of calm on the earth following the great earthquake, which will give, right, will give those who survive a false sense of security. A third of the earth, one third of all the trees and all the green grass will be burned up due to a comet or a meteor that hits earth. A meteor will hit earth, causing the sea to become like blood, killing one-third of all the sea creatures and destroying one-third of all the shipping. A star named Wormwood will fall from the sky and will poison one-third of all the fresh water, killing many people. The sun, the moon, and the stars will be darkened by one-third. The day and the night will be reduced by one-third. There's some speculation this means the rotation of the earth will be changed so that the day lasts only 16 hours instead of 24 hours. Fearsome, locust-like beings will be released from underground who will attack people who are not followers of Jesus Christ. These attacks will be very painful, but will only last for five months. An army of 200 million horse-like creatures will kill one-third of mankind. Two men of Jewish origin will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ for three and a half years and be killed at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. These two will be responsible for three and a half year worldwide drought and will be killed by the Antichrist, also known as the beast in the Bible. People will be required to receive a mark on their right hand or on their forehead in order to buy and sell. Those who receive this mark will develop a loathsome and malignant sore on their bodies within a short period of time. The oceans will chemically change and become like blood of a dead man, congealed, and everything in the sea will die. The fresh waters will become like blood. The sun will scorch the earth or the people on the earth with fierce heat. The throne of the Antichrist and his kingdom will become darkened. The Euphrates River will dry up allowing the kings of the east to march westward. The kings of the world will gather their armies together to battle God at Armageddon. There will be a great earthquake so that all the mountains and islands disappear. There will be hailstones weighing close to 100 pounds that will crush the armies gathered. Shortly after this earthquake, Jesus Christ will return with his army to claim the earth as his possession. I know some of you are just saying, wow. Where does all this detail come from? Where do they get this idea of all these things taking place? It comes from two places. Number one is proof texting. That is taking a passage of scripture and ignoring its context, ignoring all of the things round about it, and just pulling that out and saying, see there, it's talking about the return of Christ, and it's talking about the battle of Armageddon. 
And the other is just plain made up fantasy. It's based on a faulty biblical interpretation where people pit literal against figurative. They will take books of the Bible that are written in figurative language and say this must be literal. And they will fail to respect the context. Now let me explain to you as we expose this that the word Armageddon means Mount of Megiddo. The word Har it means Mount in Hebrew. Megiddo refers to Megiddo. It is an 11-acre mound in the Jezreel Valley in Israel. I have been there several times. Let me give you a couple of photographs of it. There's what's left of Megiddo today. It's one of Solomon's chariot cities. Very important strategic city in the, the area of the Jezreel Valley. You can see it's not a very large site to be only 11 acres in size. If you're looking from the other direction, you will see basically right in front of you at the bottom is the entrance into the water source. But you can see the valley is a very fertile valley where they grow a lot of things. But this was an important place. I've got a question. If there's going to be a 200 million army, million men army, that is going to assemble, how in the world are you going to put them all on the Mount of Megiddo in an 11-acre area? That's just an impossibility. They would suggest that the 200 million man army is mainly going to be composed of the Red Chinese, if you read further in their writings. But if this is literal, as they suggest, then I'd like for you to notice some of the passages. There are going to be three passages that we'll notice as we go through the rest of the lesson. Ezekiel's chapters 37 through 39, the book of Revelation, and Matthew 24. When you go back and you read Ezekiel 37 where they start talking about Gog and Magog and they're talking about those kings from the east, talking about Russia and the Chinese, I want you to notice the type of weapons, if you're going to be literal, the kind of weapons they would be using. In chapter 38, in verses 3 through 5, he talks about, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around and put hooks in your jaws and lead you out with all your army, horses and horsemen, all splendidly clothed, a great company of bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Now when you read that, you might think of the the you know bronze shield or the various metal shields. Oh, but you shouldn't think in that way. Because when you get to chapter 39 and you read verse 9, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. You've got a 200 million man army and they're going to all fight with swords and shields made out of wood. So much wood that it would take seven years to burn all of the wood from these weapons. 
Can you imagine today in our modern time when men fire drone missiles and they can hit the doorknob on a door from miles and miles away that they're going to fight a battle with swords and with wood shields? They would suggest to you that if you interpret the Bible, you must interpret it literal. And so when you get to Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20, and the wine press shall be trampled outside the city, and the blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. That's about 200 miles. You can imagine horse's bridle being this high for 200 miles, blood being that deep coming out of the wine press. That's a lot of blood that you can imagine, which would more than submerge the country of Israel. If you're also going to be literal, when you get to Revelation chapter 16, and he describes those kings as they approach, he said, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for their spirit of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle at the great day of God Almighty. So if you're going to say that what's coming out of their mouths are frog-like demons, if you're going to be literal with one, you must be literal of all. And if you're going to be literal of all, what about the dragon? Can you see that dragon in your mind? What about the beast? What kind of beings would these be? Insistence on a literal interpretation makes this view just absolutely absurd. If you're going to say, okay, I'm going to have to interpret all these numbers and all these symbols literally, then you find a man who is just absolutely out of his mind. What is the attraction? out of this part of premillennialism. Why do people want to believe all of this fanciful teachings? Well, there's two or three reasons. I'd suggest one to you is because they want to say, I know something you don't know. We have a lot of people in the world who want to say, I've got secret, I've got private information. And they want to say, we've got some sort of code that we can use to interpret the Bible that you can't. Just a few years ago, uh, Mr. Brown wrote a book called The Da Vinci Code where you supposedly are able to decode things. There are some people who believe the Bible has a code and if you decipher it, it comes out with all these things and only they know the code and they can tell you what it means. I will tell you, warning of impending disaster plays upon fear and produces converts. If you listen to those people who will provide all of this, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye have written a series of books called Left Behind. Nobody wants to be left out. Nobody wants to be left behind. And it's a great way of playing upon people's fears. But I'd suggest to you also that if you read carefully their writings, much of it is based upon covetousness. These people who believe in a thousand-year reign are looking forward to a time when they can sit on thrones, when they can have wealth untold, when the Lord somehow makes them 
rise up above others. You see, the Lord's already addressed that issue in Luke 22. Now, there was a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. Contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus was trying to get his apostles to understand it's not about being great. It's not about trying to say who is the one who is sitting up on a throne and everyone is serving him. He said it's about being a servant yourself, just like Jesus is. Well, I think I have tried my best to explain to you what Armageddon is in the minds of many of the people of this world. I've tried to show you the failures of it as you start looking at the various details. But somebody says, but I want to know what Scripture is talking about. When I go to Ezekiel 37 through 39, when I go to Matthew 24, when I go to Revelation 16, what is the battle of Armageddon? So let's explore that for just a few minutes. The book of Revelation is a figurative book. It's a book of symbols. It tells us that in the very beginning. For instance, as you open the book of Revelation in chapter 1, you start seeing a picture of these golden lampstands and you see the pictures of these stars. And you get to verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels to the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Oh, you mean they're symbols? Yes, they are. The stars represent the angels, the messengers. The lampstands represents the churches. But it's not just in chapter 1. You keep on reading, you get to chapter 5. And you get a picture of a worship taking place using an altar. And on that altar is incense being offered. And a person gets the idea of maybe, for instance, that Old Testament sacrifice. And he says, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You see, the symbols are identified for us quite frequently in the book of Revelation. So you know it's a symbolic book. You should not be reading it literal. You should be looking for the interpretation that is given by the Lord. A second thing to notice about the book of Revelation is it was written about things that was shortly to come to pass. It does not matter if you're looking at the first chapter or the last chapter. It's about things shortly to come to pass. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. 
shortly take place. Get to chapter 22, verse 6. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angels to show his servant the things which must shortly take place. How in the world could a person approach the book of Revelation where the first chapter and the last chapter both tell you this is about things shortly to take place and say that 2,000 years later is when all of these events are going to take place. That just does not ring true. In light of Scripture, these were things that was symbolic for those people in their period of time. The background behind the book of Revelation was the church was suffering at the hands of the government. And John was writing to encourage them not to give up and not to give in. In chapter 2, verse 10, we often read the latter part of that verse, but the first part is what gives it its meaning. Do not fear any of the things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw uh, some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. You see, the first part of that verse explains to us that the church was going to face some very difficult things in a very short period of time. But he says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, be faithful even though you're going to be persecuted. Well, someone says, okay, I can see the book of Revelation, but how do you deal with Matthew 24? Because there's all those signs of the times. You know, I hear these people talking about there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and there's going to be all of these things that are going to take place. If you want to look at Matthew 24, I'm going to just put a couple of pages of charts up for you sort of draw a distinction, and I think when you see it, you're going to say, that makes perfect sense. For instance, if you think about the destruction of Jerusalem that the Lord was speaking of in the first part of Matthew 24, you can see he speaks about the days, plural, verse 19, verse 22, and verse 29. On the other hand, though, the Lord speaks about the great day, and he speaks of it in verse 36, verse 42, verse 44, verse 50, and chapter 25, verse 13. Oh, there's a distinction between those days and that day. What you will notice is there were some things they could know, verse 15, verse 33. But with regards to that day, no one knows, verse 36, 42, 44, 50, and 13 again as well. It would be a time of crisis, verses 4 through 13. does talk about the wars and rumors of war with regards to the destruction of Jerusalem. However, when you start talking about the time of the coming of Christ, he said it will be as in the days of Noah when they were marrying and giving in marriage and everything was going along normally and peacefully. Signs would be given, verses 32 and 33, for the destruction of Jerusalem but no warning signs with regards to the Lord's second coming. In chapter 24, verse 16, he says, Let him flee to the mountains. When the Lord returns again, you don't need to worry about fleeing to the mountain, verse 39. In fact, if you go to the rest of the Bible, 
It says when the Lord returns again, it says in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, and we shall be changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and following. Judgment would be limited to the Jerusalem and its local area in chapter 24, verses 15 through 22. And yet, the judgment that is found when Jesus returns again is not just in the country of Israel, not just in the city of Jerusalem, but it will be worldwide. The events of that would occur within that generation. Some of you standing here will not taste of death. It will be within that period of time that these events shortly would take place. But if you read the rest of the Bible, you find out that when the Lord returns again, it was not going to be something immediate. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Don't let anybody shake you as though the, the coming of the Lord was at hand. Luke 21.20, the parallel to Matthew 24 said, When you see Jerusalem compassed about with army, know that its desolation is near. Again, no signs would precede the Lord's second coming. Well, someone says, Well, then what about all those assembles found in Ezekiel chapters 37 through 39? What about when he talks about those events there? To what does that refer? That refers to the coming of the church. Not the coming of a millennial kingdom, the coming of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, which happens to be his kingdom. In chapter 37, if you look at verses 21 through 22, he says to them, Thus says the Lord, I will take the children of Israel from the nations where they have gone and will gather them from every side to bring them back into their own land. And I will make them one nation on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king over them all. One king. You drop down to verse 25. My servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant. Oh, that's the same words that Jeremiah used in Jeremiah 32, 31, 31 and 32. You see what's plain and clear, he's looking forward to the coming of the church. And we, don't, we know that can't be the end of time because when we get to chapter 39, he talks about from that day forward. He's talking about the coming and the arrival of the church, not of some millennial kingdom. You see, here's a problem. When we get to the Bible and we start seeing all those metaphors about war, about being a soldier, about fighting the good fight, you have to recognize that it's not talking about a carnal conflict. It's not talking about our taking guns or even swords and shields. It's talking about a spiritual battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter three or 10, verses 3 through 6, Paul talks about, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. He talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. He said what we do, we cast down arguments. Or you can go to John 18 verse 36. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. Therefore, my kingdom is not from here. Or you go to Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, and he talks about putting on the armor of the Lord. 
Verse 12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our wrestle is against principalities, powers, against rulers of the darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And the armor that we put on is a spiritual armor. Well then, why do we have Armageddon in the Bible? When I go to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16, why does he bring up the Mount of Megiddo? I could spend a lot of time trying to explain to you the, all the wars that occurred in that area, but I'll tell you two of them, two significant ones from the book of Judges, chapter 5. You have Deborah and Barak fighting against the army of Sisera, and you can find a grand defeat happening right near Megiddo. Later on, as you have the young ruler Josiah, Pharaoh Necho is coming out and he's passing through the land and he's going to battle and he tells Josiah, don't mess with me, God has sent me. And Josiah meets his demise at Megiddo. It's a place where decisive battles were fought and won. And it's where the great battle against good and evil will be fought by God's people and the book of Revelation says God wins he always wins now someone says well does that mean that there will not be a world war three no it doesn't mean that at all will there be times perhaps in our future where there might be uh, dark days and wars possibly but they're no more the subject of prophecy than World War I or World War II. What will matter when Jesus returns is whose side a person is on. When the Lord comes again, will you be on his side or will you be on the side of evil? Well, you can make your choice now if you want to. We're going to sing the invitation song, and if you need to be restored to faithfulness by having a prayer, or if you need to become a Christian by being baptized for the remission of your sins, we're going to encourage you to come as together we stand and sing.